Dr. Molly Maloof has emerged as one of the leading voices in the psychedelic movement. We have a beautiful, wide-ranging conversation about psychedelics and sexuality. You'll get a keen insight not only into her practice, but everything that she has accumulated in the wealth of knowledge in this absolute pioneering frontier of medicine, psychedelic medicine. Enjoy this podcast with Dr. Molly Maloof. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Inside Tracker. So as many of you know, I founded a company called Onnit based upon total human optimization. And so many of the tools that we have are beneficial to bring you to an optimal state of performance. But one of the challenges with that is sometimes you need quantification. Sometimes you need to understand what specifically you need to work on. And to do that, you need some support. And one of the best services to come about is called Inside Tracker. Our good friend Andrew Huberman backs them and supports them. They really go through a comprehensive analysis of not only your blood work, but your lifestyle and everything that's going on to give you a clear view and some recommendations on how to bring you to an optimal state of performance. So I encourage you guys to check it out. It was founded by a bunch of top leading scientists in aging, genetics, biometrics. They have algorithms that analyze your body's data. There's some really strong science-backed recommendations for your diet, lifestyle changes. It's really customized, bespoke advice and can be really valuable. So if you're interested, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com backslash AMP. Once again, insidetracker.com slash AMP for 25% off. And lastly, we have on it. This is the foundation where I've put all of the information, tools, techniques, everything that I could think of to help optimize the human body. That's where it lives, onnit.com. So please check it out. We have so many different things from Alpha Brain to optimize cognitive performance to Shroom Tech Sport to optimize physical performance to the total human, which is another level of what people think of when they think of a multivitamin to all of the training methodologies and training tools and even just the information that we have available at the Onnit Academy blog. So please check it out. Onnit.com slash Aubrey gives you 10% off of all of these tools and all of these training programs. And it's truly the best that myself, all the top athletes, all the top doctors could come up with. These are things that people can use to just bring themselves to the very best version of themselves. So check out onnit.com slash Aubrey. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Molly Malouf. Molly, so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we got started, you started talking about the neurobiology of love. Right. And actually being able to quantify this thing that has a million definitions, some of which are bullshit. Like mm -hmm. there's songs that say love hurts. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not the love that hurts. You got it all wrong. No, totally. You're misqualifying and, and quantifying what this thing actually is because it never hurts. Yeah. This is something else. But well, heartbreak can hurt. All the things that are associated right. with love, the validation that you may have lost, the way that your ego may be damaged when it leaves, the desire for it may hurt, the longing for it may hurt, but the thing itself, uh-uh. No, totally. That doesn't hurt. And totally. I think it's actually helpful if we take this and, and talk about, all right, like what's happening in this state that yeah. we crave more than any other state 
in our existence. Mm-hmm. Like this is the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no better drug than love. Yeah. Love, love, love. So why don't I start with like a little bit of a background on why I kind of got interested in this. And this might be a slightly long diatribe, but I spent my you know, last 10 years optimizing health and doing all sorts of labs on my clients. Like I work with executives, investors, and entrepreneurs as a private doctor. And I teach at Stanford a course on health span. So I'm trying to figure out how do we extend the number of healthy years of living. And it occurred to me in my research that like, oh my God, there's like this glaring elephant in the room that I completely missed. And that's that our relationships are the greatest determinant of our long-term health and happiness. Mm-hmm. Like they literally determine the quantity and the quality of our life. And not only our romantic relationships, but our relationships in our all of our social dynamics. Exactly. Community, family. Exactly. And there's like, you know, 10 different kinds of love at least. There's all sorts. So we always assume when we're talking about love, it's romantic love. In particular, I'm studying romantic love. But, there, but love itself, we evolved as an attachment device on purpose. It's an evolutionary uh, adaptation in order to help us connect, stay together, because it enhances our survival and our chances for reproduction. Like without love, we would be less likely to live on this earth. Mm. Like it's a very challenging world out there. And this is why people get lonely. This is why people actually feel this deep pain when they're alone. It's because it's a primitive hunger signal. And actually like MIT researchers discovered this. There's actually a place in the brain that senses loneliness and senses it as like a lack in order to get you to move closer to your tribe. Mm. So like people in primitive times would have been on the outskirts of their community. And if they didn't feel lonely, then they wouldn't have and enhance their survival by moving closer to the group. So it's this everything is adaptive. Yes. If you actually look everything at is it, adaptive, including like a lot a of reason. a lot of things that we think are maladaptive are actually very adaptive, like insulin resistance, but we won't get into that today. We're gonna talk about like specifically why did we evolve love? So I've been studying this woman, Helen Fisher's work. So she's this amazing anthropologist and researcher who had match.com's entire data set. And so she started studying like the actual neurobiology of love and she developed this theory that I really think makes a ton of sense biologically. And that's that there's sort of three different separate drives of love itself. And the first one is specifically around um, falling in love. And by the way, my company's name is Adamo Bioscience because it means to fall in love in Latin. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to figure out is like, what is Ad this? Adamo. Adamo. It's, an, it's a Latin word. Yeah. yeah. And basically what we want to figure out is like, what since since the beginning of time, people have been making songs and starting wars and like doing all sorts of crazy things over love. So why do we value this so much? And what's really going on in the brain? And Helen came up with this really brilliant sort of model that really blew my mind when I learned about it first. And so when you think about like when you're out and you're dating and you're young and you're like looking for a partner, oftentimes what you're typically attracted to is like sex, right? The first thing is like, I want to have sex. <laughs> I want to have sex with all sorts, all sorts of kinds of people. And only when you're young, <laughs> just when you're young, we grow out. Yeah, of that, we don't of grow out of that. No, I mean, in fact, I think we still all like we still have desires to have sex with of lots course. of different types of people, and um, that's the sex drive. Mm-hmm. And like, turns out that we have sex hormones coursing through us, right? We have testosterone and we have estrogen. And if you actually are deficient in testosterone or estrogen, like you will have less of a sex drive, like hands down. Which is why a lot of people, when they get older, they actually lose their sex drive and then they do hormone replacement and like, boom, they start feeling normal again. Um, So the sex drive is largely hormone dependent. But interestingly, when we find a person that we like really like having sex with and we continuously do this act with them, (laughs) what happens is the body starts to produce lots of dopamine, norepinephrine and serotonin. Mm -hmm. So dopamine is just like this pleasure. It's like, oh, this person brings me pleasure. I like them. You start to get addicted to this person. And then the norepinephrine is the obsession. It's like, 
I need this person. Without them, what am I going to do? And then you have the serotonin, which is like, they make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. And I like this. Yeah, and the oxytocin. And then the oxytocin is actually, interestingly, from the serotonin release. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like a, it's a chain reaction. So testosterone largely contributes to this dopaminergic effect because we like really like sex. And so sex rewards us with dopamine. But if we keep doing this with the same person, then we get more dopamine around this person. It sets off this romantic love sort of chain reaction. And then the, the oxytocin is part of the pair bonding drive. So oxytocin and vasopressin are what bonds us to this person. And we actually evolved to have this pair bonding in order to actually maintain, um, basically have a child and make, make, keep them alive. Mm. So it's not surprising that like romantic love doesn't last forever for a lot of people. Like the sense of romantic love can go, you can kind of go in and out of it in your relationship because over time, Biology has been trying to like optimize for you keeping this, keeping your genes alive, right? Your child alive. And so a lot, like well, part of the reason why I started this company, it's, and it may be a long shot. Like I'm going to put it out there. Like this is a huge long shot, but my friend stumbled upon a formula that actually reproduces like this intense romantic love sensation when you're with someone that you really care about. So like setting matters, set matters and the person you're with matters. But when you start activating these pathways in the brain, MDMA can also do this. And it's kind of a similar formula to MDMA, but a different different compounds. Um, you start getting these same hormones released, right? And interestingly, people have taken this compound and actually ended up getting engaged. And like this happened in the 60s too with MDMA. People would start yeah. taking these drugs and they would be like, we're doing this. And so with- I mean, it's hap- it happened to my partner, Vailana, who got- was not so interested in a relationship and then they had an MDMA experience and that MDMA experience led into a very chaotic and tumultuous two years yeah, right you know? and it's obviously there's many other factors but yeah. this was a this was a little tricker sometimes we're just on the edge right you know and she's naturally such a loving being right? in general and says naturally so much desire for pair bonding and desire yeah that this this factor was definitely part of the story you have to put a little asterisk around that experience yeah but what you casually mentioned is that your friend discovered kind of the love potion yes ultimately like it's an actual love potion (laughs) which is like whoa it's whoa like what are you gonna do when you have this weird power (laughs) right like you're like and so i started reading this book called love drugs written by these two ethicists and i actually called them recently and i was like hey it took me a while to get through to them i finally emailed them with my stanford email and i was like hey i really need to talk to you because you guys predicted that there's going to be an entire class of drugs emerging in pharmaceuticals that are love drugs. And like they wrote an entire book about all the different ethical consequences. And I was like, I'm facing these right now. I'm already trying to figure out what is this drug development path going to look like? You know, my investors are asking me, what is the therapy going to look like? And I need to have ethicists on board because we need to make sure that this is ushered into the world safely and we don't harm people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so important that like, and, and, and it's, I mean, I think if you look at all psychedelics, like we just have to be so exquisitely careful with people's psyches because if we fuck it up, like we can really harm people's lives. But if we do it right, we could actually transform humanity, right? right? Like if we can actually get people to know what it feels like to feel love, then like to me, the real, the real move is like realizing you can do it on your own with your own mind. Like drugs are a key, yeah. they're a key. But just to feel it, just to feel it that one time, that first time where you feel it pure and you feel it strong and then you go, oh my God, this is it. This, this is holy. Is, this is something that's really fucking special. I mean, yeah. I remember my first MDMA experience, it was in Australia mm-hmm. and I do MDMA in Australia. And for the first time we're going around town, downtown Brisbane, and I'm like in love, not only with my partner who I took it with at the time, who mm-hmm. I just started dating, yeah. but 
also everybody. I was Everyone. seeing people going down. And I remember <laughs> I watched, I saw somebody crying. It like must have been like a, a breakup or a fight with their, their boyfriend type of situation. And I was like, oh my God. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I love you. Like, I'm yeah. so sad that you're sad. Like, and I, would, I was just seeing people in a whole different way. And that moment was life altering. To have yeah. that not only with my partner, which was great, yeah, but also like it was it was universalized yeah. in, a, in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And I started to see people and care about people in a different way. And that one experience is something that can really shift. You're encountering the the numinous love. This concept of unconditional love we've always associated with like Jesus and religion. And I was raised very Christian. And I was told that I would have to ask Jesus into my heart to be able to ex like experience unconditional love. And what I realized throughout my own experience of life and, you know, my I kind of like don't really subscribe to Christianity anymore because I've like learned all about all sorts of world religions. Perfect. Now you can name your love potion Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> like the, this is the Eucharist, guys. No, just that, kidding. It's take, not. You're going to take that Jesus tonight? No, but it's interesting. It's so good. it's super interesting. So I was looking at the history of love potions and like in pagan polytheistic religions, people would take these psychedelic wines as part of religious ceremonies. And yeah. then... Christianity comes along and they start saying, oh, you witches creating love potions, you are devil and you're evil and you're going to, you're the devil's work. And they basically took the ritual of the sacrifice, like the sort of sacramental wine. And they like said, we're going to commandeer this and we're going to call this the blood of Christ. And if you drink this like non-psychedelic wine and just imagine that it's psychedelic and that it'll give you unconditional love, then maybe it will. Now, Brian Mirarescu wrote the book, The Immortality Key, mm -hmm. and he believes that like, Christianity kind of slowly, subtly absorbed the pagan polyistic rit ritual of psychedelic wines. And then it kind of like, they let go of the, of the psychedelia. Nobody really knows what happened. But we do know that large-scale religions often adopt certain things, like, for example, Catholicism and incense, right? Where do you think they got that from? Do you think they just imagined that? No, it came from previous religions that these rituals were taken and they were sort of absorbed and turned into these new modern and religions. And the, the smoke itself was psychotropic. You there know, you like that's that was an aspect of it that we've lost. Oh, it smells good. All right, yeah, that was a part of it. But exactly. the concoctions that were actually being used were psychotropic. So exactly. people were getting kind of gassed. Imagine if you went <laughs> With, to church today yeah. and you actually walked into a room and you had like this experience of, transformation just hot box with love drugs. Dude, i think this is coming because there's like 13 <laughs> yeah, for sure there's like 13 psychedelic churches in austin yeah 13 and i know there's another one being built right now and i like and i have a friend who's a producer of, of movies she's doing a documentary and she's like all these churches are trying to like work the system to give people drugs and i'm like is there anything that wrong well yeah there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that <laughs> because first of all like basically we need to make sure these psychedelic churches don't end up causing more trauma Right, like Catholicism, what it's done for, like for example, you, you know, Catholicism basically outlawed um, sex because celibacy was considered to be holy after the church decided they didn't want these priests to like let heirs inherit land and property. So they basically just made priests celibate. But the consequence of that was that they actually demented sexuality and then ended up abusing lots of children. In like 300,000 children in France. So like one thing I hope doesn't happen in the psychedelic churches is that they start absorbing these sort of experiences and then demented shit happens. Well, I think that's one interpretation of it, but I think it's actually deeper than that. I mean, when you really start to understand 
the mechanism of union, sex yes. itself as a way, like what is, what is, how do we find God? Well, God is union. God is yeah. everything. It's oneness. Yeah. It's this feeling of connection. Totally. And you can experience that with one being. If you can experience that with one being, you can experience God in, yeah. that, in that state, that state of union. And it seems like capital R religion, and I don't want to point fingers at one because there's yeah. been many, especially all the Semitic religions that came right. out of the desert. There is this thing that's, Anything that's a way that you can find a pathway to God, whether it's through medicine, psychedelic Meditation. wine, or sex, or you know, all of these different things, let's push those aside so that yeah. the only way through is to go to the intermediary, mm -hmm. the middleman, which is the priest and which is the church, which grows these big, you know, these big edifices totally. and these buildings. And this is where you go. And it became the most powerful force in the entire world because it took this drive that we have that all of us have access to and said, no, this is the only way. And then they made everything else the devil, including sex, including all of these different drugs and medicines and psychedelic yeah. wines and things. Yeah. And that's had catastrophic global results. Like <laughs> there's just no way, no way you can fucking get around that. Cause no. when people feel God in their heart, whether it's through sex or whether it's through medicine, their whole approach changes. Totally. You can't act the same way. The myth of separation just starts to dissolve yeah. because you're like, if I know myself as one with you, then fuck, well, I'm, I'm probably one with everybody. I'm just not having sex. With, I'm not in union with them. So it changes it all. And it's just, it's a very important. And I think I heard you say that like these mystical experiences, these transcendent experiences, including the experience of love, they're important. Mm -hmm. It's not just about treating a condition. It's like the experience itself is right. important. Yeah. And the real question is, is like, can medicine and pharmaceuticals actually shift its model towards towards consciousness, right? Like if I'm MEO DMT is being commercialized for depression, hundreds of like literally over a hundred million dollars has gone into one company just for five MEO DMT. That shit is God. Like that is the, is. that is like God direct. Yeah. <laughs> like. It is the pure, it is like the, the, the rainbow bridge, <laughs> like the one that connected. I remember the first time I Valhalla. did it, I was just like, oh my God, I feel like I'm staring in the face of infinite intelligence and beauty. And this is what the Bible was like when it was like, you can't stare at God. It's too much. It's, just it's like, unbelievable. You cannot and that. Indescribable. Yeah. You know, and it's not even seeing, it's knowing. It's a gnosis it's with your entire being. The, <laughs> I remember, so I, my myself and Vailana were initiated to be able to serve it. It's not something that we do, but mm -hmm. we went through the full initiation. Cool. So not only do we receive yeah. you know, multiple flood doses wow. of 5-MeO, of but then we're trained on how to facilitate. And I remember one of my favorite facilitations was <laughs> we, we give it to this young woman and she just pops up in the middle of that experience. She goes, it's real. I fucking knew it. I knew it. It's real. And I knew it. You know, and I was like, yes. Oh my God. And you just have this experience where yeah. they're like, oh, all of this talk about God, this yeah. chatter, chatter, chatter. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're there and you've become part yeah. of God. Yeah. And I mean, like, literally, I, I jumped out of my first experience with it. I've only done it once. And I came out of it like... <gasps> Oh my God, <laughs> what the fuck? And I was with a doctor, a priest and a priestess and I'm looking at them and I'm like, guys, I'm going back in. <laughs> I close my eyes and I'm like, yes. And I was just like, this is literally bliss. And it was so, I mean, for a whole week after that, I was like, literally, I felt like I was out of body. Like for about a week, I was like here, not here. And then mm. finally I got back into my body and I was like, that was interesting. Wow. Like, whoa. 
it's difficult to actually it's integrate inevitable. that in your life in a, in a way that makes sense because you know something but then it's like well fuck does everything change or does nothing change <laughs> like it's, it's it, well, it I all depends that on experience. how you integrate it right yeah, like yeah. the weirdest thing happened to me like the weirdest thing happened to me the week after i get to the battery in san francisco and this guy what's who, the battery it's like a private club okay it's like it was at one point very fancy and like luxurious and it still is but it kind of like and everyone left San Francisco, and so it's kind of like still a cool spot, but like, you know, like Tim Cook hangs out there. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's it's cool, but it's like, um, back then it was like ha- happening. Yeah. And it's kind of like Soho House in San Francisco. They didn't really have any other clubs. Um, so I get there, and I'm like on cloud nine, and I'm just like, wow, this is crazy. And this this priest that I, not priest, he was like, um, he's a rabbi from Israel that I had met. He had like, he's like, he had very persistently wanted to meet with me, and I'd met him in Israel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, at this hotel in Israel. And um, we had this wonderful conversation. And by the way, I wasn't like fully aware of like certain religious, um, like I didn't know certain things about different versions of Judaism. And so like after our talk, I just give him this big hug. And I, when I hug people, like I hug them and I like push love into their heart. Like I just yeah. do that as a thing. And it's like a habit, I can't help it. And and he, like, he kind of like pulls back after the hug and he was like, wow, thank you. And then comes and meets with me in San Francisco. And this is the week after 5MEO DMT. And he's like, I just need to let you know that um, that hug you gave me kind of changed my life. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, like, um, well, so you're like the third woman I've touched ever. And he was like a rabbi. He was like a, you know, like certain certain, you know, um, types of Judaism. Like they just don't interact with lots of women. Right. Like it's. Same with Buddhism. Like Hasidic same Jews, with, right? Yeah, same with different religions. And he didn't look exactly like a Hasidic Jew. I couldn't really tell. So I was like, ah, uh, fuck, what did I do? <laughs> and he's like, you basically reminded me, like you taught me something in that moment. I literally had this massive awakening epiphany that like my religion has been closing me off to like most of humanity. And I'm like, actually need to be connected with be- all people. Even beyond humanity, right? Like the feminine and the masculine these are the balancing forces they're archetypes we condense them yeah. because of our mammalian biology into man and woman but they're archetypes yeah. it's the mother and the father yeah. and if you're closed off to the emanations and expressions of the mother you're not going to have a balanced life mm-hmm. it's like it's really impossible to know the full scope of the divine, which is yeah. the unicity of masculine yes. and feminine. It's the place beyond polarity, but until you bring both of those consciousness and the warmth of existence, mm-hmm. you, it's, you're not gonna be able to see the full story. Yeah, And I think that's a big fault, you know, it's a big, I mean, look, all religions, different ways, different paths, it's Most all- Most of them are patriarchal. They are very patriarchal, patriarchal. And it just seems very antithetical to the idea of knowing God yeah. without knowing the feminine as yeah. well as you know the masculine in these pagan polytheistic religions they studied they, they like worshipped aphrodite they worshipped hecate they worshipped all these different gods and goddesses they were all sort of symbolic facets of human life right that were like personified as gods and whether they were real or not like if you even study hinduism there's so many female goddesses in hinduism that are like wildly fascinating right and we just like for some reason these major monotheistic religions have basically ushered in this very patriarchal structure and kind of like left women to be in the supporting role, which I think is a huge disservice because like like you said, you like we need both. <laughs> it's fucking absolutely you know? a huge disservice. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think this is the rise of the feminine. I think people 
can mistake it for the angry feminist feminism, which is like almost trying to be masculine in a woman's body, which is not the fucking thing. It's like, how about we all, no matter what body we have, no matter what genitals we have, like, guess what? You're all the mother. You just happen to have a dick. Mm -hmm. Like recognize Mm -hmm. that you in a body is this body. This is the woman. Like, yeah. this is the woman. It's yeah. just you have masculine parts, if yeah. you want to call it that. Totally. But to recognize that energy as innate mm-hmm. is is crucial. And to not have systems and structures that encourage that, encourage us to find and to know ourselves in that way yeah. with that, that deep, loving, nurturing touch of, oh, wow, like, yeah. this is me. And this is, wow, this is you. Man, we need that. And this is what I see when I see the rise of the feminine. It's not about genders. It's about the energy which has been suppressed. Right. And also I think that suppression of that feminine energy is actually a massive disservice to men because it makes them feel like they have to possess and grab the thing that they can't have. And that is really not the way that life needs to be because I think a lot of women truly enjoy and really would enjoy sex a lot more if they didn't feel like – they were be, they'd be chastised if they enjoyed it, right? Like women are basically told you have to look incredibly sexy, but you're not actually allowed to have sex. And men, you're <laughs> like, like, right? Like, what the fuck? Sorry, but yeah, it's true. And it's just silly. Like we would all be getting laid way more often <laughs> if, if we could actually allow women to enjoy their sexuality, which is part of the reason why I even started this company. So like literally 10 years ago, I had like a total accidental spiritual awakening with MDMA on accident. I didn't know what I was doing. It was post-Burning Man. I had met this really wonderful man and we had this really great time. And I was like, let's let's just continue this for a week and my place and we created this love nest. And we just did a bunch of MDMA together and had a bunch of amazing sex. And in that process, I went from having basically, hypo- basically I had hypoactive arousal, which means like when I would experience sex, like I wasn't getting wet. And then I would it would hurt when I had sex and then I wouldn't orgasm. And I was like, for my 20s, I was just like, what's wrong with my sexual function? And it was actually that I'd had some traumatic experiences in college, which by the way, 20% of college girls do. And at I, least, at least probably at double least, that. Yeah. And and my earliest sexual experiences were basically um, reprogrammed in my mind as fear-based, right? So the MDMA- re- I'm sure your religious upbringing oh, and that didn't, didn't help. help Literally, there because was- Because not only is no. it a violating sexual experience, it's yes. also the shame that you participated in Oh, I had so much experience. sexual shame. So it's like compounding yes. this issue. I had so much shame around, like when I was in fifth grade, I was like, they told us masturbation was wrong. And I was like, because I went to a Christian grade school and there was like praying and there was like chapel and we had to like sing every day. And I remember being like, masturbation is wrong. I've been doing this my entire life. <laughs> mm. I was like, whoa. And I was like, that can't be right. And then and then there was a revival in my school. And they started, like, they literally like, it was like a religious hysteria. Like people were like high on God. And I remember they started- High bur- on judgment probably. Well, but, but they literally yeah. were burning books yeah. and CDs. Like who has been to a book burning? Like no one. I didn't even know CDs were flammable, <laughs> but yeah. it was not healthy, right? But I remember thinking, like, can, is anyone else watching how insane and hysterical this thing is? And so most of my life, my like thoughts around sex were like, stay away from that. Like, don't enjoy that. Like, don't have anything to do with that. And then I have this this like miraculous experience where literally my sexual my sex life overnight went from totally inactive and like totally dissociated, basically, to like oh my God, I, I, have, I have orgasms. I'm enjoying this. Like I'm actually turned on. Like it doesn't hurt anymore. And I was like, 
what if I like shared this with the whole world? Mm. And all my friends were like, you can't do that. You can't tell everyone you did this. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I probably shouldn't talk about that. You know, I do have a medical, I was about to become a doctor so I, mm. right before I got my medical license. And um, so literally until MAPS came along, I was like, oh, so shit. MAPS basically was commercializing MDMA for PTSD. But the real thing that they're doing is fixing the trauma. And PTSD is just a manifestation. But there's all sorts right. of conditions like not everybody with trauma gets PTSD. Sure. Some people get different manifestations. And in fact, a certain, like a large percentage of women who have any sexual trauma end up with the manifestations of sexual dysfunction, not PTSD. Like only somewhere around 30% of women with um, sexual trauma will end up with PTSD, but around like 80, 60 to 80% of them will have some form of sexual dysfunction. So I fund, I actually brought this idea to the company MindCare. I was talking to Kelsey Ramsden. I was like, mm -hmm. Kelsey, somebody should commercialize MDMA for sexual dysfunction. And she's like, you should do this with us. And I was like, whoa, whoa, female entrepreneur telling me I should join her company and like start this movement with her. And I was like, you go do that. I'm gonna start my own company because I think I've got a different formula I wanna work on that does, because I can't do MDMA anymore. It causes me to have horrible depression for a few days. And it's sure. like, sucks because like, it worked great when I was in my 20s, but for some reason, me and a lot of other people, they do MDMA and like they just have major, like major next week depression. I've actually had friends do MDMA and it like they, they didn't maybe integrate as, as well as they could have. And it actually helped reactivate their tra trauma because of the depression that followed. Mm. So I think it's really important to understand that like MDMA is like version 1.0 of love drugs and we need it to get, it we needed to get approved. Absolutely. We 100% need MAPS to get it approved because if they don't get it approved, everything downstream is not going to work. Like right. we have to support MAPS fundamentally. But look at SSRIs, right? Like there's like so many different kinds and different ones work for different people. So like, why not commercialize different versions of love drugs that could potentially help different people? And when this is the thing we need to figure out is like, why do certain drugs work better from, for one person versus another? We don't really know. Yeah. Like we need to figure, and the only way we're gonna figure this out is if we do the science. Yeah. I wanna go back a little bit to, you know, the repatterning of yeah. the sexual trauma that you experienced. Yeah. Because I think it's important not only to have the medicine, but also the partner. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the thing. It's not like you can do MDMA or Love That's Drug 2.0 and just be work. with and be with some transactional. I don't think it's going to work that way. Some transactional, un you know, unreconciled shadow masculine, and yeah. that's still taking and not right? not in union, not actually listening, and not and it. I don't. I don't know. It may not be beneficial at all. But the combination, and it's just like the MDMA assisted psychotherapy, right? It's like the MDMA with the incredibly well-trained right. male and female practitioners, psychotherapists who yeah. are actually helping support you in this yeah. for this repatterning. And I've experienced this with my wife, right? Yeah. It's the combination of medicine sometimes, but also me and her working through these things together. That's and like, thing. that's the thing that's unquantifiable. And totally. like, how do you, how do you say like, all right, well, this lover, it's something you have to know. It's just like a feeling that you have to have, which goes mm -hmm. beyond what, you know, you can actually study in, in kind of a scientific study because yeah. there's no pre-qualification thing to say, how reconciled is your shadow masculine <laughs> when you're making love to this person who has this unquantifiable amount of trauma that they don't even know and their cervix is actually closed, but it's actually energetic and you couldn't see it with a fucking microscope that you stuck in there. It's like, it gets very, it gets very tricky at that point, but it is absolutely necessary. It's one of the most necessary things, but yeah. this is where you have to start to, tell stories and start mm -hmm. to understand and people have to come encounters come into encounters with 
people who can just help shepherd them. Right. And this is like the wisdom carriers. Like, how do you identify this? How do you learn to trust yourself and learn to trust that, you know, the instinct for pleasure, remove all of the shame from that, remove all of that, and then remove all of this transactional nature, this urgency, and then also have these medicines that can be helpful. But be mindful. It could also open you up to somebody who's not quite right for you totally. and then a lot of momentum can take place and totally. all of this all of these stories just need to be told and told and carried yeah. and this if we had a healthy society that was doing this like which we're steering towards we would have elders right and the elders would be like sit down with me child let mm-hmm. me talk to you about these love drugs and about what you can identify mm-hmm. in the masculine and it would be you know the the matrons that yeah. would be able to pass this information down and then the you know the grandfather elders that would be like son let me talk to you about this i know your urges are going to be strong i remember this but i want you to see through my eyes how i see a woman and so that you can see that and all of these things that need it's going to take a while to shift but it's absolutely essential and it's gonna it is a real revolution that's at hand yeah i mean i really do think that like the 60s there was a full-on sexual revolution and it was a little bit free-for-all right but now it's like we have so much more knowledge yeah like all everything you just mentioned like what can we do with all that knowledge to actually help transform society one thing i'm really trying to figure out is like and like obviously i'm not gonna figure this out on my own but like the more i learn about sexuality and the more i learn about all these people who have like experiences with sexual trauma and like have problems with their sexuality, the more I realize like, God, society's all sorts of fucked up when it comes to this. Like what would a healthy society around sexuality look like? What would that yeah. look like? Like it's so far from That's that. That's a very important question. You know? You know, and it's it's a dangerous question because then you look at some other stories like uh, Starhawk wrote some novels, The Fifth Sacred Thing and The City of Refuge and she hypothesized this utopian you know, society, in, in which case, and it goes back to the old mystery schools where there's right. actual places, because it's not just women that have sexual trauma, men do of as well. Of course they do. And I, you know, I, I don't know what you would qualify as trauma, but I had, uh, I was always, always put so much pressure on myself to perform mm-hmm. in the best way possible. Yeah. It was so important. And I through my own family now. history, you know, like through oh, my parents' sure. divorce and stories about the reason for the divorce was my father, sexuality, you know, mm-hmm. not me not being as good as the as my stepfather's sexual so all of this stuff, like, oh wow, the woman who's the most important, amazing woman in my life, my mother, would leave the person if the sex wasn't right. And I, I think it's just a story, anyways, mm-hmm. that just kind of drifted mm-hmm. through and found its way to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame anybody for sure. sharing this, just in these conversations, yeah. you know. And so in my head, it was like, well, if I'm not performing sexually at the best of my ability, the greatest woman that I'll ever have will certainly leave me. And so I come with all of this pressure. And then I find, of course, as you do, you manifest the situation that's going to exacerbate your fears. I find a woman in college Mm -hmm. who if was very hard to please sexually. And I was reading like books about how to like <laughs> yes. perform sexually. nothing like, to do with you. I was performing like, <laughs> how, how do you do cunnilingus? I ordered books, like <laughs> sexual secrets, the alchemy of exit. I'm like reading, I'm like, all right, I'm fucking, I got this. I'm really like paying attention. But she didn't like oral sex. And she was like very, it was very difficult to please her. She had her own traumas and stuff. She but she had was, some trauma. Of course. And then if she didn't orgasm, if she didn't climax, she would just look at me and go, ugh. Oh my God. And turn, like, turn over and sometimes just turn her back to me and start masturbating. Oh my God. Right. And so, and I was like, 
Uh, Dude, so, if that happened to me, I would lose my shit. <laughs> like, but I internalized it all. Like, I'm yes. a fucking failure. I'm yeah. just such a failure. Yeah. I'm fucked up. Well, the up. problem is we look at sex as this thing that's such a, like, Amer- like America's sex life is like a performative act. Yeah. Right? Like, it's all based on porn these, these days. All these kids, all they know about sex is everything they've seen on porn. They, they, they've been watching their entire lives. Right. And I'm just like, whoa, like really good sex is not about the orgasm. It's about the entire experience and the orgasm could happen or not. And there are so many different, well, first first of all, like women have, I don't know about, actually, I don't know about this with men, but I definitely know about my own body and that there's like all sorts of ways to orgasm as a woman. But like, I don't think a lot of women know this. And I also think there's like this sort of obsession with like the ejaculatory orgasm in men and the like clitoral orgasm in women. Mm. And like, everyone's like, this is the orgasm that we must all achieve. And there's actually all sorts of other ways to experience orgasmic bliss. Yeah. And yet everyone's just like, no, we have to do this thing, this event. And it's like that pressure kind of ruins the bliss because it's like, we're all expecting this one thing to happen. Absolutely. I would for, so after that period, I would obviously look forward to sex, but look forward to it with absolute dread. Yeah, right. Because this was like my entire manhood, my everything was wrapped up in whether this thing was going to be achieved, whether I was going to stay fully erect the mm-hmm. whole time. And obviously condoms are a difficult thing to manage right. when you're also under all that pressure. And yeah. all of these different factors were going. So it was this combination of desire and dread that I was all <laughs> dealing with until finally yeah. I found you know, my partner, Caitlin, we had a beautiful relationship and it all started to really heal. And right. I started like, I was like, oh, okay, it's all okay. It's all. Yeah. So I found a partner. And also at that point, I was doing MDMA and we would do MDMA. And for like, so I found my own healing yeah. that then allowed me to be in a state where now, fast forward, I can be with Vailana and I've, have healed through my totally. sexual trauma. And there's even still little parts that yeah. I still have to unlock deeper levels of trust and yeah. deeper levels of faith in myself and not being yeah. disconnected from my cocks, being like, I fucking hope you, I hope you come to, <laughs> I hope you do your job today. You know, you son of a bitch. Like, don't let me down. How yeah. dare you? You yeah. know, but yeah. being like, no, this is me. I don't need to separate myself from this and yeah. all this. So going back to that, so not I just want to highlight the male sexual trauma, but also then right. if you look at this, then extend it to society and then go back to the old ways in the mystery schools, it gets kind of interesting because that is so taboo to be I like, know. you could go to a place where there was people who could teach young men about how to engage in divine sexuality oh my and God. maybe have these aphrodisiac wines. And I it's mean, like, never, imagine. no, we could never fucking do that. But what but why not and did we're i mean I, I arguably believe that probably women were running these temples oh they were I'm pretty sure they were the, <laughs> like, and that was it you know it was it yeah these temples of these temples of love right, right? these sacred temples whether it's isis or whatever and then of course and as the patriarchy came through yeah. and kind of squashed all of this we lost all of this yeah but- well because the patriarchy looks at feminine sexuality as this massive powerful intrusive force that creates life and that is such a threat because it's just like you got this power to literally sustain the species. And like, we need to make sure we control that. And like, to me, that's like the fundamental like rift between men and women that needs to just like, we need to end this. It's just unnecessary. Like we work together here to thrive and flourish. And it's not, it's, there's even potentially some more magical fears that come from this because in those heightened states of sexual ecstasy and bliss that a woman can have, like this is where the manifestation powers can actually grow stronger. This is where like actual magic is oh, available for real. Like, real magic so if you're if you're peddling some fake ass magic mm-hmm. and you're like 
oh, those women over there in the circle in the clearing, and they're going into ecstatic bliss together with their with their flying ointment and their sexuality and they're doing real magic and we got this weak ass bullshit from a dusty book like fuck them like they're they a threat yeah you know and it's just threat removal is, right. is really what we've experienced because yeah. but yes it is the this creative power that should be worshipped and revered but also power like right. there's legitimate available power in the feminine and the intuitive power and totally. so many power. and it's not to say that men don't also have power 100 do but it's like there's been this i think fear that men have had who don't know their own power who mm -hmm. don't trust themselves mm -hmm. and of the feminine having access to that power but if you squash it down have women competing against each other exactly. tell them all of these things there's and you scarcity can keep of it in men control. Right. you have to like run there's we're gonna run out of dudes like there's no literally I tell, <laughs> tell my girlfriends who are looking for partners i'm like you realize there's billions of people on this earth billions there are literally there's like more than enough to go around and yet we have this scarcity mindset in our culture and it's just like i really do think that if women want to rise we have to learn to support each other we have to Essential. lift each other up. And I don't see it enough, honestly. Like I make a major priority of it, but I definitely have seen women tear each other down. And it's like, mm, it's not helping. And on top of that, like the Me Too movement, like when it first started happening, I was like, fuck yeah, we need to stand up. And then I was like, oh shit, I don't know if we're doing this right. Because I actually think it's alienating women in business from men's circles, from men's meetings, from men's after work gatherings. And like men are starting to get more and more afraid of their, of the, like, their inability to control themselves with women. And I don't know what the answer is, but like I do know that like this idea that you kind of brought up that maybe from the mystery schools of like, what if we all got together and just like had better education around all of yeah. this? Like what if we really like, what if there was a way that men could feel safe to explore their sexuality and their urges and their understanding? Like like let me tell you something. I once got dosed with a man's amount of testosterone on an accident at a company that I was working at. I was sitting on a chair and like we were making custom compounded nutraceuticals and hormones. It was like personalized mm -hmm. medicine. And I sat on this chair and I got this like stuff on my arm and I was like, oh wow, that's weird. That chair's slippery. It must have been like polished or something. And yeah, then so some a man rubbed testosterone cream, cream on his and then inner he forearm. Sat on the, he sat on the chair <laughs> and I sat on the chair and I start looking at my boss and my coworkers and I'm like, Oh my God! Why do I want to? Why do I want to like? Uh, why do I want to do things with my co? <laughs> why do I want to do things with my coworkers? Like this is making no sense. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And I go in the bathroom. And I'm just like looking at. I'm just like put my hands on this on the countertop. And I'm like, look in the mirror. I'm like, Molly, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, testosterone. Oh shit. Oh my God! I've got a man's amount of testosterone in me today. This is wild. And I was like, if I had to deal with this every day. I don't know. I think women actually should just get prescribed a man's amount of testosterone for like a week and just yeah. like walk through society feeling that turned on, feeling that level of like, holy shit, that's what it's like to have a man's amount of sex drive. Yeah. And I think if women understood that, they'd be like, whoa. And I think every man should go to a gay club and just like dance with a bunch of gay guys and know what it feels like to have a bunch of people objectify you and like look at you as an object that like they could, they could possess. I th I think that's a powerful recommendation. You know, honestly, you know, I mean, you can't really recommend anything, you but can't I, but, do, it, obviously but it would be that. very, it would be very like illuminating. You know, to understand, to be able to see through each other's eyes. Yeah, and and look, this is also you know, this is all taking that to the next level. Like, if a man has never received any energy inside them, they don't understand what it's like for a woman to receive energy. Um, mm -hmm. You can't also recommend that everybody 
you know, have every man have some kind of anal experience and this is not desirable. <laughs> I actually had a guy friend tell me that recently. He's like, I think all men really need to have more anal stimulation. Like, I think it'd be good for them. And I was like, what? I, and I'm someone, <laughs> I'm someone who is as open-minded as I am and yeah. is like absolutely, yeah. you know, in, in honor and worship of yeah. all aspects and all of the buttons. Yeah. I'm still reticent, <laughs> you know, like I'm still reticent to do it. But some part of me knows like, Come on, man. Like, well, like the prostate and the like, you know, the Bartholin glands in a woman are like the analogous structures. So when like, <laughs> this is getting really dirty, but when women squirt, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing as like the prostate, um, the, the prostatic fluid, right? Mm -hmm. So like one of my guy friends who's like, you know, he's a, he's a legendary human. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was just describing how he's like, yeah. And so like, finally, when I got to know my prostate, it like transformed my sex life. And I was like, whoa, dude, go teach that to dudes. <laughs> like, uh, That being said, I think it's like, we need to just like, we need to sort of demystify all this and not as like scary or worrisome and just be like, just all just be curious about these things. You Absolutely. Know? I'm not like trying to and get everyone so to become much, poly. And there's I'm so much pretty, homophobia too. That's, there is the, so that's much. this issue yeah. with, that's with this with men. And I heard you mention poly. I think we should talk about that because I lived poly for eight years. But ultimately, like this homophobia that if you start playing with that asshole, what if you like it too much? Mm -hmm. And then if you like it too much, what if you're what if you're bisexual or what if you're gay? Okay, so fucking what? Like yeah. so what? So what? So what? So what you want you to know, experiment? Yeah, you like, know. I think this just opening and it's it's starting to happen. People yeah. are getting more relaxed, but it's still it's still in there. I mean, the word gay was an insult mm -hmm. that you would casually throw around about anything. It could be like the, a a movie or a party or something. You wanted to say it was bad or you didn't like it, you used the word gay. Yeah. And this was like this is my childhood growing up all the way into my twenties yeah. until people were like no that's you can't don't say that that's and you're like yeah whoa i can't believe we were saying that right you know and, and these these things that have been patterned in people that need to get unpatterned mm -hmm. and realize you know one of my really good friends is jason ellis who's an open by you know openly bisexual mm -hmm. and he's at tatted head to toe pro skateboarder just mm -hmm. as, as masculine a guy as you could mm -hmm. come across but talking to him about his bisexual experiences and you know I think talking about the difference between him being a top and him being a bottom. And he was like, well, you know, for a long time I was a top. But then I realized that's like surfing, but not wanting to get barreled. Like not <laughs> wanting to like find that sweet spot, like being on the bottoms where it's at. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's the barrel of the wave right there. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. You know, and I really, I like believe him. Yeah. But nonetheless, like it's still these interesting yeah. taboos that don't allow you to fully understand, like we don't see each other. Yeah. And I think this is a, this is a big part of the healing of the masculine and feminine. It's yeah. not judging and othering the other person, but and like, also respecting those people in the world, including like, I, I do feel like largely, like largely mostly monogamous. And then also, a little bit monogamish, like curious, but not mm -hmm. really poly, definitely not poly. But I like deeply respect everyone's proclivities because it's all about love at the end of the day. It's all about like, how do you want to love? How do you want to be loved? Like none of that is wrong. As yeah. long as you respect the other person and treat them as the way you would want to be treated and you're kind and you're caring and you're empathetic and you like really, t I mean, there's this, there's this thing that people just really need to do. And it's called talk about sex before you have it with people. Like really start, like, I think a lot of people could just like sit down and be like, there's a single safe sex elevator speech. And it's like, I learned this and I kind of modified it from this guy, Charlie Glick. And it's like, when were you last tested? What were the results? 
what are your likes? What are your dislikes? What are your safe sex protocols? What are your agreements? So like, who are you bonded to? Like, who is your relationship? Like, do you have a primary relationship? Do you have a monogamous relationship? Are you married? Like, people just don't have these conversations. Like, are you just out of a relationship, right? Like, have these conversations before you go engage. And then I kind of added a few more things, which is like, what are your fears? What are your desires? And um, <laughs> the last one's what is, what's your safe word? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. But it's funny. Like, I think actually the more you actually openly talk about this stuff, the, the more it actually slows things down between yeah. people. Like, actually, I think everybody could just slow down because I just think hopping into bed with people immediately without really getting to know them, like, we could all be safer. We could all actually usher in, like, a much safer sexual positive movement that, like, didn't involve getting syphilis or gonorrhea or chlamydia or HIV that was like actually about really caring about people's psyches and, and loving them and making sure that like they're not harmed in the process of these experiences. Because sure. there's always a power differential, almost always, which is what makes sex so great. The polarity yeah. of two people. And, and exacerbating that is also a very rich portal of mm -hmm. like, all right, let's stretch the polarity of dominant and submissive. Totally. Either sex can participate. Oh, 100%. But let's stretch the polarity really wide. But there's still so much shame and judgment around it, despite the fact that there's all these clinical studies yeah. that are testing people who are in the BDSM or power exchange mm -hmm. movement. And they're more socially adaptive. They're generally yeah. happier. They're they're freer in a lot of ways and a lot of qualities. But still, a lot of people have a lot of judgment. But nonetheless, when a book like Fifty Shades of Grey comes out, every single person's reading. I remember I was on a flight <laughs> when that book came out, and I looked around me, and there were seven different women independently reading the same book. And I was like, "Whoa! Yeah. Like this is like there's some yeah. deep stuff there, but it's still." somewhat shameful and in all yeah. of these ways but if you open this up just just evaporate all the shame and be like what are you into well, a lot of people like, just what really want to let like? go they want to be able to surrender and let yeah. go to the experience of sex and that's what makes great sex is we can just like let go like i just did this ride yesterday on the top like that point what was that building stratosphere called? stratosphere and I, one of my friends was like i don't want to do this ride it's gonna make me nauseous like don't make me do it i'm like you're doing it <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, he gets on the ride. I'm like, just just completely let go to the experience. I know you think it's going to be terrible, but it's going to be amazing. And we go up and we just like, you can, I mean, you're basically shot up upwards and you lose all gravity and it feels like you're falling and it's terrifying. But like, if you just let go into that experience, it's just exquisite. It's just like, this is phenomenal. And I think the biggest problem, and even Anne Shulgin mentioned this when she would describe her experiences with, with um, you know, drugs and sex, is she was like, the real secret is like, the ability to just have untenseness. Like mm. one of her favorite psychedelics was 2CB mm -hmm. and 2CB Fly. Those were like, those were two of her, her and Shulgin's favorites. One of his like ways of evaluating his drugs, the tryptamines and then tactogens, was like, how well did it work with sex? <laughs> and literally that was one of their qualifying, like what qualifying, like, is this a good drug? Does it work with sex? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, what a, what a great thing to stack with men. People talk about, oh, this, this stack. Yeah, how about you stack it with amazing sex? You know, like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for this incredible bonding mystical experience? How yeah. about this is part of the stack? Totally. You know, in the right, obviously, right set, setting, you know, people around the right energy, of course. But this is a, this is a very powerful force. Mm -hmm. And we're just starting to put it back in its proper priority, or some of us yeah. are putting it back in its proper place of like, 
this is sacred and powerful. And if we open the conversation, then a lot of the shadow behaviors of sex will start to go away. Exactly. It won't be like this thing, like I'm not gonna look at it, I'm not gonna look at it. Oh my God, feet, oh fuck, oh God, you know, or whatever the thing is. It's like that. all of that tension then creates the breaking point in the psyche where you just go to grab that thing. Mm -hmm. It can happen with any, it can happen with money. Totally. Too, you know, like I, so many spiritual people who have like renounced money and said money is the root of all evil. And I've experienced this in the spiritual community. Sure. Then we'll get into some business transaction. They'll get access to a little bit of money and they get like, they like snap and get yeah. like super greedy and they're like trying to take a whole mm-hmm. bunch more money. I'm like, whoa, whoa, where did this come from? Mm-hmm. But it's the repression that creates like a kink in a hose. Yep. As soon as it's unkinked, boom. Totally. It's like this response. And totally. this is happening with sex constantly. Totally. I, I was just so glad we were able to have these conversations because I really feel like people are just like, what are we doing, right? Like everyone is so confused these days. Like I literally see it everywhere. And I think if we don't start having these conversations more regularly about our differences and our desires and our sexual proclivities and our traumas, like it just it, – it's going to make it okay for other people to have these conversations. You know, the more we we have them out in the open because they yeah. are taboo. I mean, like literally I recently realized I was sitting, I was like at a concert in Austin and I was just like, I'm starting a drug company. It's trying to help people heal their sexuality and their relationships. And I'm at a rock and roll concert. My life is actually becoming sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I was like, did you think that you were going to be here someday? And I was like, I mean, the doctor, the doctor of sex, drugs, and rock. <laughs> well, the and funniest roll thing is, is that my pretty good. The funniest thing is that my, my brand was Doctor Molly before I even started this company. <laughs> like, that, and I did not know that this was going to be part of my journey. Like, I did not expect it. The but I started. Winks. Well, the funny thing is, I saw the psychedelic movement, right? And I, people are probably going to think I'm so weird when I tell them all these weird, like, spiritual experiences I've had. But like. I saw what was happening in the psychedelic movement. I saw it was starting in like 2019. And I was like, gosh, I think I should be a part of this. And I was like fasting for three days. And I was with my friend at his family's estate. And I thought we were on a date, but it really wasn't a date because he was literally just there to fast. He was like, I want to learn how to fast. And you're a fasting expert. And I was like, fine. So the whole time he's like ignoring me. And I'm like pretty turned on because I'm not eating. And I'm like not doing anything because I were meditating and hanging out in the sun in a swimsuit, not eating. And after that day, like, you know, I, I went and I worked out at the hotel um, that was nearby and I did a sauna. So all these mitochondrial bioener- bioenergetic capacity building techniques that I study and I use. And then I went and hung out with my friends, said goodbye to this guy, had a beautiful meal and went and hung out with my friends, like connected with my community and then go home that night. And I'm like laying in bed and I'm just like envisioning building some sort of psychedelic company. And I literally out of the blue start having a completely hands-free, touch-free, involuntary full body orgasm. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Am I being fucked by a ghost? Like, how am I going to tell my friends this? The like, invisible man got nobody you. Is not gonna, nobody's going to believe me. Like, what just happened to my body? And I, I called my friend who's like this spiritual sound healer and just teacher. And I go, hey, Raquel, like, did that thing that happened to you, that Kundalini awakening involve like a lot of orgasmic bliss? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, that thing happened to me. What does that mean? She's like, well, kind of means your entire life's going to change. And I was like, no. I'm not ready for that. I have too many things. I have too many things I've got to do. Like this is, she's like, look, you got to surrender. And I was like, fuck. So I started reading books on this and I was like, oh crap. Like literally this is going to turn my entire life upside down. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> and I started meditating, mm. started going to meditation retreats. started going to these things called Kapasanas. This guy Jorge Yant is like a legendary businessman and meditation teacher mm-hmm. who's like modified Vipassana into like a, like a modern version of it. It's like for the modern individual. Yeah. And 
I started having just this massive transformation of my consciousness and like total ego dissolution and total reconstruction and looking at my shadow. And in that whole process, it just kind of kept leading me further and further into this direction. And then COVID hits and I see the psychedelic movement just blasting off. And all these people that used to like call me crazy if we're talking about psychedelics in the like PayPal mafia world, they were all building companies around it. And I was just mm -hmm. like, whoa, guys. You literally called me nuts for telling you to drop acid 10 years ago in Maui. And now you're starting companies investing in them. And 90% of these companies are run by men. And I was like, you know what? Look, like we got one life to live. I'm smart enough. I teach at Stanford. I'm like, mm -hmm. I, I'm a great doctor. And I've like been a pioneer in my space for years. I'm probably smart enough to do this. And even if I fail, I'm going to try. And so I was like, I'm going to start a psychedelic company. And then, well, I thought about it. And then I went to my, I went to my, um, my, this investor who I'm friends with. I'm an advisor of his company and he runs a family office. And I go, hey, what do you think I should do? I'm like kind of stuck. I'm like, do I become this like Dr. Molly, like next generation of Dr. Oz and like Andrew Weil, but like a woman in the media? Or do I like start this company that like tries to bring a love drug to market to help heal sexual sexuality and help improve human relationships and help heal women? And he's like, well, the latter is evolutionary, but the, but the, the former is evolutionary. Because you're like just an evolution of these these dude doctors, you know? But the latter is revolutionary. So he's like, it's really hard. You're going to have a really, it's going to be really fucking tough. But he's like, but if you really want to do this, fuck, I'll lead you around. You know, I'll, like, I'll, I'll give you two million and like, we'll fund you. And I was like, whoa, dude, if I've got a lead, that means mm. I can do this. <laughs> like, yeah. So I just started the company and I was just like, I'm just going to go for it and like see what happens. And like, look, it's like a long shot, like everything else in life. But I think importantly, if we don't go out and try to shift the way medicine looks, then it's just going to keep looking the way it does. And it's imploding upon itself. Like it is. I have been watching medicine implode for the last 15 years since I, I mean, I've been working in healthcare since ninth grade. I've literally spent my entire life becoming a doctor. I started becoming, I wanted to become a doctor in fifth grade. And I like knew it was my, my journey. I knew it was my calling. And I become a doctor and I'm just like, this is literally a nightmare. Like this system is a nightmare. And yeah, these doctors, sick care. These do it's a sickness billing industrial complex that was derived from military medicine. Literally, that's how it evolved. And it's great for fixing you if you get sickness your arm blown off. billing industrial, industrial complex. complex. It's exactly what it is. It's not a healthcare system. Healthcare would create health and it would care about people. And that creating health would mean it would help people adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And tell me, did this healthcare system do that for America during COVID? Arguably not. Like arguably, it's left a lot of people in debt. It's left a lot of people broken. We have this like, we have this like system where doctors I'm talking to daily are literally losing it. They are so, they have so much PTSD. Like I've talked to so many doctors that are just like, I have all the money I need and I go, to, I go to work every day and I'm like, is this it? Is mm -hmm. this it? And I basically left the mainstream system and started building my own sort of version of health span medicine. And I thought I, people thought I was nuts. My parents thought I was crazy. They were like, you're, you're a nut job. Like, what are you fucking thinking? Living, leaving mainstream medicine, trying to do your own thing in the middle of the most like competitive place in the fucking Americas. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And like, you should believe in me. And they're like, look, we, don't, we think you're a fool. And I was like, oh shit. And then my friend came over and I was crying on the floor and he was just like, he's just like, Molly, you gotta pick yourself up off the ground. And he's like, you have to get your shit together. He's like, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody will. And he's like, here's, I'm gonna give you these tarot cards. And I was like, what am I gonna do with these tarot cards, dude? He's like, look, I'm gonna do your tarot. And he pulls out the fool card. And I was like, oh my God, the fool. What the fuck, I am a fool. I made a huge mistake. <laughs> and he's like, 
No, Molly, The Fool is like a really fucking great card because you're literally doing something that might look crazy, but it also might work. Mm -hmm. And it's the beginning of an entire journey, entire hero's journey you're going on. And like the thing about life is that you're going to go on multiple hero's journeys. And like they're going to take you to places that you didn't expect to go. But if you don't go out and try and have courage and like lead with love, then like you're going to just continue living the same mundane existence you're going for. And to, to live that blisteringly true life to you, and let's say you, quote, fail at the end. Who gives a who fuck? Who gives a fuck? No one's ever regretted, like, <laughs> do you hear that deathbed regret of, like, I gave it everything I got. I poured my heart, soul, passion, and love into building something that I believe would change the world, and it didn't work out. I wish I would have never done that. Yeah. No. Nobody says that. No. Nobody says that. They're like, fuck yeah, I gave it my best. What they regret is, I've played it safe. I yes. just followed. I stayed in the routine. I did what I was supposed to do, but I never really went for that thing that I knew that I could possibly do. And that's the thing that people don't realize. This this idea of playing it safe, like that's going to yield a good result. No, it's not. Fucking go for it. Yeah. You know, go for it. Like go, you know, go out on your shield. So what? You know, exactly. like this is, this is what we're here to live. Okay, hey. Like if you're gonna go for anything in life, you just have to put yourself in the arena. Mm -hmm. Like you just have to. And if you're in, like, yeah, you might get like partially injured or killed, but at the same time, like, like I know people are gonna call me out, and they're gonna be like, "This woman is evil. This woman is the devil. She's trying to usher in sex and drugs. She's gonna like cause all sorts of havoc." And it's like, no, actually, I think I'm one of the more responsible people in the world that's trying to do good, you know. And then you have the people who, you know, who know you, yeah, and who will be like. As those attacks come, they'll be like, no, 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 side to side, like, no, fuck y'all. You know, you, you want to go through her, you're going to have to come through me and them and totally. them and them and them and them. And this force is starting to build. And that's one of the beautiful things. I mean, yes, this time has highlighted how deeply, deeply flawed right. our system is. I mean, you can look at Dr. Vivek Murthy talking about how loneliness is the number one epidemic in the world and all the studies about loneliness. And it's can, so simple to solve. It, it's so simple. It's community. It's community. It is literally connecting with people. Right. That is the only thing you need to do. And by the way, we should have drugs that are legal, that are enabled to be given to groups. Like there's no reason why you can't, you shouldn't be able to go to a group sound ceremony and take ketamine legally. Like there's zero reason. It's super fucking safe. <laughs> yep. Call up John Hopkins. Come and, on. And put it in an arena. I mean. I feel you. Like, I feel you. We need these group experiences. This is why ayahuasca is so important, right? It's yep. like we need to have ser like, like seriously like sanctioned group experiences that bring us together in a place of love and connection. And we also need to be able to like, for, for example, meditation is also a great way to get there. And like meditating in a group of people is one of the most powerful experiences you can have. Sure. Like whether breath you work, go breath work with a group, whether of you do drugs this or is not. What, yeah. This is what, you know, my organization fit for service is all yes. about. We bring people together through initiatory, you know, transcendent experiences Beautiful. and sharings. And, and at the end, people form friendships that are deeper than friendships they've ever had in their life just mm -hmm. from these processes, these shared processes. We don't even use the med we use the medicines of breath, the medicines of exactly. ecstatic dance, the medicines of meditation and sound healing and and soul quests and soul wanders out in the out in the wild and these yeah. account in the sharing circles. There's technologies that don't even require external exogenous substances, but are available. And it's just that intelligence. But going back to what I was saying, like 
We understand that you know loneliness is this absolute epidemic. We understand that obesity is one of the leading risk causes for all COVID mortalities, exactly. right? This is not a debatable fact, but how much effort with the trillions of dollars we've launched have we put towards loneliness or obesity? Or obesity? And it's like, where? It's like fucking crickets exactly. when you look out there. And if that doesn't wake people up to that this is not health, yeah. this is about something else, yeah. I don't know what will because these are glaringly obvious. And yeah. instead it's isolation and this, this you know last stage intervention you know, and whatever you feel about those, fine. But let's look at these big, massive, massive things yes. that are not being addressed. Like, imagine if we can bring a love drug to the world that's a self-love drug that, like, teaches you about loving who you are. <laughs> what would that do? Change everything. Right? Like, when I finally, finally, truly learned to love myself, which was literally in the last year, mm -hmm. holy shit, did it change my entire reality. And it's like made it so easy for me to love people. Like just so easy for me to just like send love to people. It's almost a prerequisite, honestly. It really is. It's like very difficult to love another if you don't love really yourself. really is. Absolutely true. And the thing is, is like obesity is such, a, whenever I see an obese person, it's like I am seeing two things. They're unconscious to their eating behavior and or there's often major trauma under the surface. Sure. And what people don't realize is that when you develop insulin resistance, like and you overconsume and you eat because of stress, which a lot of people in impoverished situations do, and the only food available to them is the unhealthy packaged processed foods and fast foods because that's all they can afford. Basically, those foods and that stress response, literally, like in, in primitive times, like we would have sought food in order to help survive. Like it's in primitive impulse to just seek food to survive. Like it literally is baked into our biology. And like insulin resistance, which I've discovered through my research, was actually an adaptive response in the short term. It's actually an adaptive response in the short term. If there's no food available, your body actually naturally becomes insulin resistant in order to enable you to actually fight off infection, put on food very quickly, and actually be able to mobilize fat available to you. Like basically be able to keep, um, not mobilize fat, but be able to keep blood sugar in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So you have fuel available to your brain so that you can get out of danger. Right, so that like like insulin resistance would naturally raise your blood sugar, and I basically like look at like obesity and a lot of things as adaptive responses that are gone awry in chronic situations. Sure. So chronic stress just means people chronically eat, and if we just like taught people these basic understandings of their biology, maybe the government could actually do something. Like maybe they could actually just teach people this is how your biology works. Like you're going to crave food and unhealthy food, but these food companies. They're just like, they're taking advantage of that primitive desire to like survive. And they're just like shoving food in your face, selling it with sex, by the way, and saying like, look at all these movie stars and pop stars that sell soda. Like Coke says, they literally sell Coke and it's two teenage people falling in love. Coke yeah. is love. Fuck you, Coca-Cola. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah, truly. That is not love. That is that's literally causing disease, like fundamentally. Yeah. And it's just, this is what happens. Like, this is just so transparent. Well, and the, the problem is if we expect the government to actually change any of this, it's not going to happen. No, because, it's consciousness. Big, big food, big pharma, big ag, big whatever, big mi military industrial, big jail, big They're the ones that fund all of the campaign contributions anyway. So the government is part listening to what the people need to get elected, but mostly just trying to appease all of these massive forces, the real oligarchs that are kind of running things. So these transformations and revolutions must come from culture, yeah. must come from people. It's going to be these conversations conversations in mass at large you know at large scale yeah. that start to inform people and then 
looking at all the different all of the different things that can help explain what you said i absolutely agree with about all of that stuff and i also listened to charles eisenstein who Mm -hmm. talked about one of the reasons why he surmises that people reach for food is this self-rejection and self-condemnation which makes somebody feel smaller and smaller and smaller and so the desire to eat food creates the one thing in which they can enlarge themselves enlarge their being they enlarge their own body yeah in a way and it's like yeah. maybe maybe for some people maybe not who knows but these interesting ideas about like instead of just judging somebody let's just look at they're attempting to solve a problem. What is totally. the problem? Is the problem stress? Is the problem that they feel so small? Mm. Is the problem that they're having, you know, copy? Is the problem trauma? Is the problem that they were sexually abused because they were attractive and they're actually subconsciously trying to, yes. trying to make themselves unappealing and yeah. unattractive? Yeah. You know, I had a I had a partner who was sexually abused and wanted and then that caused her to want to be a tomboy. She like wanted to discard her femininity exactly. and become more masculine yeah. because of that. Yeah. So all of these factors, instead of like just lobbing judgments, yeah. like let's look, there's a reason. Let's try to help them find the reason, like yeah. hold their hand and be like, hey, totally. let's dig on it. Let's look, look, look around here. When's the last time your doctor asked you what's your core wound? You know, <laughs> like how yeah. about that? Like how about yeah. that? How many people know their core wound? Right. Like once you know that part of yourself, it literally shifts your reality because you realize how many triggers come from that. Like how many just come from that, like, oh, that thing that made me feel safe because I was having to adapt to this like thing that happened, you know? And everybody has some form of trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost everybody, I'd say the vast majority of people do, Yeah, you know? And a lot of people may not be able to name it until you start to just really kind of see that a lot, so much of it is unconscious. And a lot of it comes out in these psychedelic experiences. It like I've had indeed. a lot of friends discover, like I had a patient and he was just like, there was definitely something buried in his consciousness. And I was just like, I think this guy has sexual trauma. And he even kind of brought it up. And he was like, yeah, I know something happened when I was a kid. I just don't know what it was. Not really sure. And I don't know really where it happened, but like it seems just like fuzzy to me. And I was like, you know, maybe you want to go try some ketamine assisted therapy. Yeah. And it was through his therapy that he just is like, I saw it. I saw what happened. I saw who it was with. I remembered everything crystal clear. I forgave them. I realized it wasn't my fault. And I was like, he's like, I feel so free. I feel like this shame that I've been carrying that I didn't even know I was carrying, this unconscious shame was just lifted. And he's like, I'm on this new journey and I feel so much calmer. And I was like, wow, like, yeah. wow. Yeah, I, I think it's always a, to me when someone says, yeah, I just don't remember my childhood. I'm like, uh, mm. uh-oh. You know, it's called like, dissociation. Like this is, uh, you know, but you have to be careful yeah. because yeah, it's I like know, you can't know, say. You, you can't, can't really say that. You can't say, you can't suggest something because no. then you could suggest something that could go in their mind. Totally. It's all, and then you also have to know that if they're going to uncover this, they need the right support oh, and 100%. care that's going to help them Therapist, through the whole other sure. side of it, right? So I really do like, not condone ketamine. It's not like, yeah, fucking take some MDMA, figure it out. No, no, <laughs> like, no, no. Good no. luck. In you fact, I think either, the know? most important thing people need to emphasize with all therapy, all psychedelics is like, if you do not integrate properly, you are uncovering trauma and it's like a gaping wound. And like, you got to sew that shit up properly. Mm-hmm. If, if, it's, if you want the scar to heal. Right. Like you really got to sew clean. that up. Yep. You Keep know, with, with, good, with good suturing, you can not see a scar. Like it can be very faint, right? But the problem is, is a lot of people just like leave that wound open because they're just like, like they go into these ketamine clinics and they're hoping to get help. And I've actually seen people come out of them more traumatized and addicted to ketamine. And like literally they, they pursue street, street ketamine, which we know can be laced with fentanyl. And it's like 
we have got to talk about the dark side of psychedelics at some point because these ketamine clinics, like they can transform you, but they can also damage you, especially if you end up with an addiction like ketamine use, right? If you go into ketamine therapy thinking you're going to heal your addiction, you end up with a new one. That's a problem with the industry. And like, this is something that we just all need to start like self-policing. And um, I don't think it's being done properly. I think Mm. a lot of people are just like, first of all, it's a really good business. Like people make a lot of money. It's like doctors are are charging an enormous amount for very cheap medicine, but for the all the care around it, you have to like charge for the staff. And in the future, like I do think there's going to be a way to make this cheaper, safer, more scalable. I just think we're in this place of everyone figuring it out. Yeah. I am very concerned though that if we don't figure this out, then it's going to kind of spiral out of control. The th- yes, yes and, <laughs> and you know like I think Right now, we have such a rampant, raging inferno of a problem, mm-hmm. right? And we're so conscientious about, you know, psychedelics, you know, being impeccable in this. I so know. That, so that I we're know. Not, I have so like that, such a utopian so vision of the world. We're not starting little fires. You know? And I get it. Yeah. I get it. But meanwhile, fucking bonfires, catastrophic building fires, yeah. fucking worlds on fire. Totally, on literally. Everywhere. Germany, there was like a massive protest against vaccines like yesterday. There's a trampling at Travis Scott's concert. There's fucking crazy shit. All sorts ha- of shit's crazy happening. shit's happening. And if you look at the People numbers. People are trying to anesthetize themselves. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the numbers of everything Please that's going anesthetize on. anesthetize me. I cannot handle this. <laughs> right. So it, it's it's kind of interesting. And I agree. And I totally agree with you that we should be impeccable, especially at the press of legalization like do our fucking best but at the same time i still err on the side of leniency of like it's still net positive i'm all for medical freedom it's still net positive like let's say hypothetically in a wild like raging fire in order to stop the fire from spreading to a different part of the forest you put a chemical in the water Mm -hmm. that was going to make the wood less less flame retardant right which the trees it's not great for the trees and maybe the squirrels don't like it but it's not going to kill them but it's like not the best thing yeah but nonetheless you stop a whole fire from you know whole forest from burning down yeah I think that in some ways even the proliferation of ketamine let's say for example you're you know habituated to benzos or mm-hmm. habituated to opiates For and sure. all of a sudden you take low dose ketamine lozenges mm-hmm. as a new substitute for yeah. that and it allows you to cope with that or instead of your, your habitual alcohol yeah. use right oh i've seen a lot of people go off alcohol with with ketamine and so these things are like yeah all right maybe habitual ketamine use isn't exactly optimal yeah but nonetheless as a as a substitute maybe it's an intermediary it's going to do way better yeah. than a lot of the stuff that's out there. It doesn't mean that some people won't f- take it way too far, For as sure. they always do. But I I, I kind of also want to voice that, yes, impeccable as much as possible, but also the net the net effect yeah. is going to be dramatically better. And these these lozenges, there's very, very little evidence that they cause bladder um, toxicity. It's like you have yeah. to be really loading these like daily lots, like all day long. Like it's really hard for you to abuse them. They're not, they don't taste good. They taste like shit. Like yeah. they're not like a fun thing to put in your mouth. Um, that being said, um, I do think that you're right. I think that like we do, if you really think about it, like there's this there's this research um, that a friend of mine did. She has a TED talk on this. And it's like they gave animals that were about to experience a PTSD level and stressor ketamine before the experience. And it did not convert to PTSD. Like the actual, like typically there, there's a way to induce PTSD in animals through these experiments. So they ran the same experiment, but they gave them ketamine prior 
and it just like completely obliterates the PTSD risk. And then they need to do ketamine therapy on the animals that right? have PTSD. No, like, exactly. Hey, little buddy, it's all right. right. <laughs> it's all right. God, it's gonna animals. be. It's gonna be okay. You know? Give them a little scratch behind the ears you know? on some good dose of ketamine. But like, little, imagine in like refugee MDMA camp there. camps. Like, what if we were to be able to give lozenges to people who are entering a refugee camp for the first time? Yeah. Like, immediate sense of like dissociation and safety and third person view of what's going on and you're like oh okay okay this is like this is intense but like right. we can handle it right you know yeah i mean it, there's just this this kind of bias of you know all of these pharmaceuticals that are causing all of these you know crazy dystopian problems well they're okay because we've already accepted them and there's all these deaths well, exactly. and overdoses and misdiagnoses exactly. and blah, 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 blah. but these new things watch out you know and, right. and they tend to be sensationalized when this thing happens like i think yeah. in amsterdam they you know now it's only the the truffles that are legal not the not the actual caps of the mushrooms interesting that are legal and the reason is is that one young woman who took actually the mushroom caps decided to jump off a bridge tragedy right yeah and but that one instance then sensationalized and yeah. changed changed everything meanwhile mm -hmm. like 900 people die of tylenol overdose every year and you like don't even know that but like a cute and ssris have a black box warning for teenagers so that if they take them they're more likely it's more likely to commit suicide yeah SSRIs and, and, and sometimes horrible ways there's, a, horrible there's ways. a story that was on a, a documentary that um i can't remember the name but a, a woman in college goes to the college doctor get subscribed some SSRIs and I don't know exactly the mm -hmm. you know the details of this it's not really fresh but she committed suicide by lighting herself on fire I mean I mean and that that I one mean. thing that one thing doesn't doesn't make headline news right but you're damn sure know when an ayahuasca death happens yeah like you're for sure that's out there yeah. everywhere yeah and I understand sure like let people know the dangers of ayahuasca there are dangers the dangers of the practitioners taking advantage of yeah. the people there's actual you know, brujeria and yes. I, you know, in this, in this place, there's ways in which people can manipulate you when you're For open sure. in that conscious level. There's lots of issues that yeah. should be talked about. And I, and I make sure to talk about this is not, you know, uh, a panacea and this is not totally. everything is good, but nonetheless, there's horrible shit happening that we're not even looking at. Yeah. But then we have this really like ego myopic gaze. And I think it's because people are afraid of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of that moment where they take something and they feel love and then they go, oh my God, I've never really loved my wife or my kids mm. like I ever did and mm. I never loved my life and mm. oh man. Yeah. You know, like that moment is scary. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's scary for people. So it's easier to say, no, 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 make it illegal. I don't, I don't, maybe there's some conspiracies or whatever, but I think a lot of the legislation against psychedelics is just, People are scared. Well, People they're scared are... because of like the '60s and like the, the mass hysteria, and they they had to they stamp it down. I mean, look at Nixon; like he was just like the war on drugs, right? Like, let's just put a war on this. And it's just yeah. like, okay, well, yeah. You know. Nixon and Reagan could have had your love potion. Who knows? The funniest thing about Nixon is so interesting is that he actually like started this space program, you know, and like literally like shot these two probes to space and like literally put like eight billion dollars into the space program. So it's like this guy was kind of a doofus, but like he did something cool, <laughs> like you know, he like didn't understand drugs, but he understood space. So like that was neat. So like can't completely fault him. But like I just think that people don't understand these things. They don't realize their power. I had a call with Rick Perry. He's pro psychedelics. Mm -hmm. This guy is like full on like let's let's get these legal in Texas. I mean, if we can get Texas on board, come on, like yeah. 
maybe. <laughs> well, Texas is now a different. Texas is not the Texas it used to be. No. And Florida is not the Florida it used no. to be. Florida used to be the butt of a joke. Yeah. But now it's like. Now it's cool. Damn. Florida's fucking. <laughs> Florida, Florida got sexy. Florida got sexy as fuck yeah. lately, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so it's it's interesting what the, what the times have had. And, and those are the things that are. It's cool to just look at and look yeah. at how things are evolving and how all of these things that you used to used to take for granted mm-hmm. are now different. I remember I went to a party and it was a, in a community in Austin and a really spiritual community. I mean, sound healings and medicine yeah. ceremonies. And that's the only context I knew them at. And it was a party during the election. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go. They want to have this party. And it was like super pro Trump party, and I was like, wow. "Whoa!" Yeah, like all of you fucking sound healing, psilocybin journeying, whoa. you know, like what? Whoa. This is this is a. I was like, "Whoa!" Like this is interesting, yeah. and I certainly didn't agree with a lot of the rhetoric of what yeah. they were talking about, yeah. but it was interesting to see like this is not what I expected at I all. Mean, America looks so different. Things are so different than they used to be, right and left, and all of these judgments that we used yeah. to have. Like, let's all just take a step back and be like, all right, what's going on here? I mean, I would like I would like someone to answer that for me because I was literally walking around Vegas last night being like, why is it that I feel like I'm a stranger in my own country and I feel more normal in other lands? Like, yeah. when I leave the country, I'm like, ah, oh, I feel like a normal person. <laughs> and like, in America, I'm like, where are we? Like, what is this place? Like, I've been nomadic for two years. I'm about to, like, probably land in Austin, for, like, for at least, I don't know. I'm Austin feels really good these days. I hear you. I'm really loving the energy. The live music's incredible. Like, the people, the vibes, it just feels like normal life there. But, um, but like, I've been all over the country, and I'm just like, wow, everywhere I go, America just looks so different. Like, everywhere I go, there's so many, so much change. Mm-hmm. And there's a few places that, like, don't really change. Like, my family has a place on this island in Wisconsin. It's just, that place doesn't change. And I'm like, I love this spot because it's always the same. Right. But most of the country is just, it's just going through a transformation. I think so many people are just, like, people are just trying to make sense of it all. Like, yeah. it's hard to, to do sense-making in a world that's so, so different. And, like, so there's, like, more people that associate with spiritual but not religious so there's like this mass of spiritual but not religious who don't even identify with like a modern religion. And then there's all these people who are like, I don't have a home. I'm a nomad. Like I live everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so strange to like all of these, and all these, all of all these, these politic, political groups. Like yeah. the, the vast majority of people I know are like, I'm postpartisan. Like they're like not even into either side. They're like, I don't feel like I relate to Democrats or Republicans. Like what do we call ourselves? Like we're in this new mass of people who are trying to figure things out. And another interesting thing when I was, I've been talking to Daniel Schmachtenberger. Who I, is oh, I love really, Daniel, I, I dear love, friend of mine. Yeah, I love him too. And he's so smart. And, yes. he, and he's really identifying that we need this cultural revolution to be able to check the powers that be of like exponential tech and all of these different forces oh, that yeah. I was mentioning. And it's going to come from the culture. And one of the interesting things that he was pointing to that we're going to start a project working on cool. is taking the religious institutions which still have a lot of traction right yeah. and if you reduce it down to the mystical roots oh, like know. take Judaism for example like I have the, I had this amazing interview with Rabbi Mordecai Finley cool. who's deep into the Kabbalah and <sighs> you go to the Kabbalah and you're like yes like I've and we were talking about all me from my 22 years of psychedelic experience, all of my experiences, how they related to the mm-hmm. Kabbalah. And then you go into Taoism and you're understanding like my nine dimensional cosmology of, yes. of you know the universe and God and which one is the Tao and which one is the word yes. and which one is the logos and how all of these things go in. 
and you start to find the mystical roots and the mystical roots of Christianity is like I've talked to Ted Decker about and different wow. different people. And you start to go through and you find these mystical Sufism, which mm-hmm. is like a mystical roots of Islam in many ways. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize that everybody starts to congeal around common truths, just different different ways in which they look at it. So if we can get the religions Brilliant. actually to start looking back to their roots, back to their mystical roots, and then bring people back through these wisdom traditions, and then use that as a force that can help rally people. And it could be the same for politics, right? Like say, okay, what is the essence of you're leaning towards liberal? Like what's the real essence, not the politics, but the essence and the essence of conservatism Mm -hmm. and and individual rights and sovereignty and states, right? What is the essence? Can we reduce it to that? And have us attached with that. A good friend of mine, Tom Chi. Do you know this guy? You you really should interview this guy. He's an absolute genius. His entire thesis of his investment fund is like, how do I create and invest in technologies that are net positive for humanity and nature? And that actually save, um, they basically are like, a they offer better returns on investment than traditional technology. So this guy is a real thinker. I was asking him about this sort of like dichotomy of like, liberals versus conservatives. And he's like, well, look at the roots of the words. Like liberal is all about liberation. It's all about breaking free of convention. It's all about exploration. Conserve is about conservation, conservation of the things that we value, mm. trying to preserve those traditions. Right. And there's, we need these polarized, polarizing forces in order to ensure that certain things are not lost, but that we are able to explore. And like, where can we just keep meeting each other? You know, like we just accept that there's these different forces and we don't fight against each other. We just accept that like, there are certain things that we probably should preserve and certain things that we probably should explore. And like psychedelics is a great example. Like we probably should be exploring these. They seem important to consciousness expansion. They might be tools to help us explore our consciousness. I 100% predict there's gonna be a time in the future where everyone finally gets it and it'll probably be like 50 years from now. But like there is going to be a time where people just realize that you can literally generate so many things with your own mind. Mm. Like there is so much power in our own consciousness. And if you can learn to hone that consciousness, like it takes work, like massive effort. You have to actually be able to have time and effort to dedicate to spiritual practice. But there, like I literally went and meditated on a meditation retreat. And I basically like sat there. I wrote every adjective of what MDMA feels like. And I was like, what does MDMA feel like? And I like sat there and did a meta meditation, like a meta meditation, literally thinking about, I feel sensual, I feel connected, I feel alive, I feel, and I went through every single adjective. And by the end of that hour meditation, I was full on MDMA, full on met God, samadhi, had to leave the tent and go to the bathroom and look in the mirror and be like, what the fuck just happened? Beautiful. Like it was, it was like just an experiment, right? I was like, can my brain do this? And it did. And I was like, okay. I don't think I can teach that to everybody overnight, but if we can get people to start meditating and get people to start doing 10-day sits and get people to realize that like psychedelics are just one tool in the toolbox, they're a key that unlocks the door. If I didn't know what MDMA felt like, I don't think I'd be able to write out all those adjectives. I could bring myself back to that moment through deep concentration. And I was like, God damn it, mind is incredible. Like this is bonkers. Mm. And I think this is one of the great things that dr joe Dispenza is doing he's great right like he's reminding people that this thing called the placebo effect that we try to totally. rule out is actually the magic itself it's totally. like what is that it's 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 the mind changing the body in a substantial way for so sure. substantial that we have to account for it in every single clinical trial that yeah. we do because it's that fucking powerful yeah. what if you go into that and use that 
for your own good yep. and he's reminding me and miraculous things are happening when i went to his retreat right? i'm just watching this and hearing stories of people who have used their mind literally in these ways to transform their health their life and this message of empowerment is not the message that we hear out there uh -uh. it's like you're a broken machine you're fucked up take It'll this pill and take it forever and this is the only hope that you got yep. you know Yep. And so it's it's really all of these stories starting to weave together that give people back their their power. Like exactly. time time to take our power back. It is. And also just empower people to feel like that's possible. Mm -hmm. Right? So many people just feel hopeless. You know, they really just feel like I don't know how to get out of here. And that's a frequency issue, right? That's just lower vibrational energy. And like I don't want to get into deep into quantum physics, but like literally you can think your way, like you can really just like you can use the power of your thoughts to create the sensation of love in your heart at any time, but you just don't feel like that's possible because things can feel so painful. Yeah. But like it is a practice, literally a daily practice that you can bring into your life and you don't need Jesus to do it. Like Jesus is great. If you need Jesus as a tool to bring love into your heart, awesome. I still pray to Jesus sometimes, but I also just like actively close my eyes, regularly generate love. Just like literally just like lay there and be like, oh, love, bathing in love. And it's just this weird thing that like, you think that you need to get it outside of yourself. You think it's found in this relationship. You think it's found in like everything external, but it's like, no, literally you, you find it internally and then it, it magnetizes externally. Mm -hmm. Everything around you starts becoming more loving. People around you start noticing your loving experience and they start like reflecting back to you what you feel. Like it's, it's it literally magical. It's one of the fa one of my favorite things that Ramdas talks about is about oh, yeah. how you open your heart. And he says, find something that, you love anything doesn't matter it yeah. could be a puppy it could be a kitten it could be your partner it could be a tree it could be whatever and just keep loving that thing right and love it more and love it more and love it more and love it more until your heart he opens also says, love your heart the pain. opens yeah love the pain yeah and like that's that's that a whole other level a whole that's other a whole level. other level and that's the ability that you'll ultimately have once you hone the ability to love but everybody can start with something they love yeah and then just love that more, like totally. expand that. Let's turn the volume knob up on this love yep. and just keep going. And that could be your practice and practice makes the master. That's what Don Miguel Ruiz says totally. about in Mastery Love. Practice makes the master. Practice, yeah. Molly, this has been an amazing conversation. <laughs> this has been so much more fun than I mean. I thought we were gonna have fun, but like we went for it today. Of course, that's we, what we really do. did great. I mean, this is really, really <laughs> profound. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So. What can people do if they want to get more Molly? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, like try going to Burning Man when all your friends are looking for you. No one can find you. No one. Um, <laughs> I mean, the best way to find me is on Instagram, at least, at drmolly.co. Um, you can also email me at mmaloof at stanford.edu. You can also find me on LinkedIn. You can also... Um, Find me on Twitter at Molly Maloof MD. Like I'm all over social media, so I'm available. Beautiful. And yep. are you are you working with Karen at Harper Wave with a book? Did yeah. I oh see yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I'm working on a book. So I got yeah. a book deal. I actually in that meditation retreat that I went on that first uh, like in September 2019, I actually like envisioned creating a book, and it like manifest after I got I got I wrote a book proposal with an amazing ghostwriter. She helped me kind of refine the proposal. And then pitched it in February and writing a book on, um, it's called The Spark Factor. It's mm -hmm. all about biohacking for women. And it's really about how to create more bioenergetic capacity in your body. How do you create that spark of life? How do you yeah. bring more energy into your body and thrive? 
And all the books that have been written for biohacking are largely for written for men. And like I basically read all of them and did a lot of things that men do. It turns out they don't always work for women. So I discovered a lot of things that make us different. And I'm just kind of providing people some context of why when you're going to biohack as a woman, you got to be a little bit more careful about your own biological imperatives yeah, that are hormones different. Are different. Hormones are different. Yep. And I've made a bunch of mistakes and I'm trying to help women not make those mistakes. I've Beautiful. also learned a lot of cool things. And I, I, I taught a, I teach a course at Stanford and I literally like have so many slides that I was going over with my, my, um, this ghostwriter I'm working with, like we're kind of writing it together. Like I talk to her and she takes my transcriptions and then she like edits everything. And she basically said, Molly, you have enough content here for 10 books. And I was like, well, let's try to do one. one. Yeah, and exactly. um, and then Harper Wave was my number, the one, like the publisher I wanted to work with because they work with Dave Asprey and Max Lugavier. And so I was like really stoked to work with them. And so we're almost done with the book and then we'll start the marketing plan and editing next year. And it'll come out probably at the, probably the beginning of 2023. Well, we'll yeah. do another show then. Hell yeah. Molly, that was beautiful. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. So much love. We yeah. love you. Feel the love. Love yourself. Love the world. We'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you're interested in any of the Fit for Service programming, make sure you check out fitforservice.com. I love you all, and I'll see you next week.